FormeePoultry.com, I'm Erica Schaefer, Digital Media Senior Editor. Last week, we introduced you to Matt Wadiak, co-founder of the meal kit company Blue Apron and founder of Cook's Venture, a poultry company. He talked about what he sees as flaws in our current food system. In the conclusion to our conversation, Matt explains in detail why he chose to grow chickens as opposed to other animal proteins or even produce. He makes the case for why regenerative agriculture has value for farmers, and he tells us what he really thinks about alternative proteins and cell-cultured meat. But we'll start with Matt discussing how regenerative agriculture can potentially alleviate food insecurity in developing nations. I think I think there 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 are, are folks in different parts of the world that are, are are nutrient poor that are looking for ecological solutions that incorporate uh, you know farming crops in addition to growing and cultivating uh, meat for human consumption. So when you have a solution that's part and parcel that manages the the crops that you grow along with the the chickens that you grow, um, you're with a, a relatively good feed conversion. You're able to support. A, a food system as opposed to just one point in the food system. So a lot of people just grow grains and a lot of people just go chicken. But until you really combine those things together, um, philosophically, you don't really have a system that, that is exportable, uh, a, a part and parcel, um, uh, a product, an, an IP product, that can actually solve problems in developing nations. Matt says that topsoil is this country's greatest resource and mixing it with synthetic inputs isn't sustainable. He discusses practices that farmers are using to grow more calories while improving soil quality. So um, we're partnering with farmers to do basic things. We call it peaks to transformation. So things like um, adding a cover crop to our crop rotation, um, just by adding red winter wheat and then harvesting that and then drying and milling that, we're now able to grow more calories per acre while also instilling root systems within the soil of the land that keeps the soil from eroding. And over time, those root systems will contribute additional carbon to the soil, which basically takes greenhouse gases in the form of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, puts it in the soil where it came from, and builds healthy soil over time. So our goal is to partner with our feed growers to create more systems of small grains and alternative crop rotations. And because our bird has a more robust and developed um, digestive tract, our bird can eat low-density feeds and process them into, into uh, muscle and bone and organ tissue more effectively than a conventional chicken could. So having a healthy bird is really essential for having healthy soil. There are other heirloom species of animals and plenty more in the realm of produce, but Matt chose to become a poultry breeder for specific reasons, and he explained in detail why producing chickens will have a greater impact on soil quality and climate change. So. When you're talking about produce, that only comprises about 3% of America's uh, crops nationally, all of the fruits, nuts, perennials, and annuals that we grow for consumption for both domestic and, and export um, only, only makes up about 3% of America's cropland. By, by far and large, the, the, the largest cohort of cropland in America is used for corn and row crops. 97% of America's crops are are crops that are designated for either feed or ethanol. So when you look at um, uh, corn production, we'll call our biggest biggest crop in America, 
uh, about 40 to 50 percent of America's corn goes into ethanol today at an energy loss. It takes about 1.7 liters of ethanol energy to produce one liter of ethanol. And that's another subsidized system. So the corn is subsidized and the ethanol is subsidized. So I uh, very much advocate for the reduction of, of corn for ethanol in the U.S. When people start talking about we don't have enough cropland for this or for that, it's total nonsense if we're still growing ethanol. That's the first thing. The second thing is that 19% of America's corn goes to cattle, to ruminant animal production. Cattle are the only, uh, ruminants are the only um, category of animals that can convert celluloid material or grasses into uh, simple carbohydrates to be utilized through fermentation into digestion for um, the caloric needs of the animal to grow. So why we are feeding cattle, you know, corn-based feed, doesn't make any sense whatsoever when we have plenty of grassland in America and globally to produce the same amount of ruminants that uh, were in existence on our land in the form of bison pre-colonization. You know, before um, the Christopher Columbus and the, the, the mass exodus from Europe into the North America, we had more ruminants on American land than we do today and they were managed through controlled burns and grasslands. So feeding, feeding cattle off of grass is a very real possibility. So I am very much of the advocacy that we should utilize more uh, grassland in our country and, and create a system that is more seasonally based in grass-fed cattle. We just don't have the infrastructure for that today. The next biggest cohort of consumption of grain and, and therefore the biggest percentage of the land use that we can address it's chicken, and that's about 9% of America's corn use in the U.S., and then after that is swine. When you look at the chicken system, it's a little bit different because you, you can independently have a small cattle operation in the country and aggregate cattle and get them processed. You can independently, independently have a swine operation and get them processed or join an aggregation like, we'll call it, you know, like uh, Becker Lane or, or Nyman Ranch, you know, owned by Purdue, does a pretty good job of aggregating farmers into processing, but where's the independent processing for poultry? All of the poultry in America that's grown in any kind of scale whatsoever is grown by a large poultry company that owns their own facility and is integrated into the grain system. So if you want to make a change in the food system and, and growing better food, um, you know, you have to address the poultry problem. And there is, and, and likewise, there are no alternative companies that own poultry genetics in America other than the two big ones, Avigen and Cobb. So even if, even if I was like Joe Schmo, the you know, young farmer trying to start out a new chicken company, how am I going to do it? If the breed isn't available and the processing isn't available to me, and I have to sign a contract with somebody to build a, a you know, poultry housing to four to $600,000 a house, so you're stuck. So to change it, to change that whole part of the food system, which is the chicken is the most eaten food on the planet, to change that paradigm, you need to incorporate breeding processing in, into that if you want to make any impact on, on land use. If I wanted to change the, 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 the hog system in America, honestly, like you could go out and you could create a farming operation and you can co-process with somebody and make a deal. That would work. And maybe we'll do that in the future, but the, the biggest and most desperate need for, for change was, uh, was chicken, and we saw that in and try to address that opportunity first.
Matt says he hasn't had a problem convincing farmers the value of adopting regenerative agriculture practices, and he says farmers that do adopt these methodologies can make more money compared to farmers who use conventional farming methods. They convince themselves because if you can pay people more money on a per acreage basis for non-GMO crops than, you know, commoditized uh, corn and soy, then the answer is right in front of them. I've never once talked to a farmer in my 10 years of working closely with over 250 farms that didn't want to make improvements to their land and didn't want to make more money. So if there's an opportunity to do a little bit better, you pay farmers a fair wage and they get to improve the quality of their land and have better have higher outputs and more nutrient density per acre, then of course they're going to say yes. We've, we've never gotten pushback from a farmer. And, and, you know, it's unfortunate because we live in a world where we think farmers are, like, stuck in their ways. It's not true. Farmers are, are always changing and adapting to the times, and they're fighting really hard. Unfortunately, the, the truth of the matter is the only information that most farmers get is from their local input or, or seed representatives. It's either John Deere or Bear or Monsanto or, you know, one of the, the known entities. And those folks are just out there to, to make a profit. They're not looking after the farmer. They're looking after the bottom line of the, the company. If you start looking after the health of the land, though, you can address the idea of making, you know, having a profitable company while also supporting and protecting your, your, your food chain. And how much can a farmer make? That depends on the crop. Well, we have two different things that we're talking about, right? We have the farmer that's growing the chickens, and we have the farmer that's growing the feed, right? And those, those are totally separate. So a farmer growing feed, you know, that we would contract for us, you know, I think non-GMO feed right now is going at a premium of, like, you know, I guess, about 50% more than conventional feed. So they're in right there. The farmer's making a lot more money. Organic feed, you know, domestically is going for almost 2x conventional. So, you know, maybe there's a little bit of a yield hit, and you have to have some crop rotations, and there are some requirements to get to that level. But the farmers are absolutely – the only farmers that are really doing well in our country are the ones who are converting to um, more conservation stewardship practices. Those are, those are the folks who are, who are doing well. And over time, even as more people enter that market and it becomes more competitive, you know, I think the market has shown that can bear um, a slight increase on cost per pound of outputs of that. Um, when you're talking about chicken, if you're like a poultry grower for us and you're buying, you know, we supply the feed to our growers. Um, but if you're growing for us, we don't participate in the tournament system. Average cents per pound last I checked was, I think, between 7 and 8 cents per pound in the tournament system for an average grower for like a, you know, one of the big chicken companies or really any chicken company. Um, and we pay our growers um, anywhere from uh, 11 to 13 cents a pound for ours. So um, that uh, is almost, you know, a time and a half to two times. And additionally, we don't have the requirement of uh, building new housing for us. We're recycling old housing and cutting doors in it and allowing outdoor access for our birds whereas the new housing is very sealed up and, you know, like negative air pressure inside and, like, very controlled. Our bird's healthier and has more robustness to the outdoors. So we actually have the opposite requirement. We want the, the houses well ventilated. You know, if it's hot out, if it's cold out, we want the bird to experience the seasons, uh, making sure, of course, that they're comfortable. But um, when you have a, a breed of bird that's heat tolerant, um, you don't have to have these crazy high-tech, you know, $600,000 chicken houses. And, Therefore, the farmers who we're working with don't have these really expensive long-term leases with their banks. They're not indentured servants to the chicken company. They're recycling their houses, and then they're just making profit 
you know, based off of working with us. Matt believes the proprietary chicken breed on offer by Cook's Venture tastes better than others on the market. He says the company is selecting breeds continuously, selecting for hardiness, slow growth, and other traits. I wanted to know more about it and if he was saving some of these breeds from disappearing entirely. So, we're, you know, as, a, as a, a, a genetics company, we're selecting birds constantly, but the, 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 I guess the answer is yes and no. You are saving some breeds by working with our breed because the Delaware line is, a her, is an APA heritage line. The, uh, the Naked Neck line is an APA heritage line, and those are part of our pedigree birds, but we cross those birds much like you have like a three-way cross in hog production, like a Duroc cross. Our chicken is also a cross, but it's a cross of heritage birds, and a proprietary bird from the 1930s. That was my, my partner's grandfather's line. So we, we create this, we maintain our pure line pedigrees, and then we create the broiler line three generations later. And um, that's the line that, that, you know, we're breeding for the attributes that we're looking for, the right kind of growth curve, which is slow growth at first, you know, uh, bone, organ function, leg development. You know, and if you cover a lot of poultry, obviously you know that leg problems are at the forefront of one of the biggest complaints about animal husbandry today. So we're, we're selecting for all of the good things in the animal. And then um, at about 50 days, we want the animal to plump up and then, you know, go, go to harvest. So a conventional bird at 38 to 42 days will go to market. Our bird goes to market about 60 days. So we're really selecting for all of those things. And our breed is called the Pioneer, and it's a, it's a combination of this three-way cross that we've developed. It's taken about 10 years um, and, you know, an immense amount of effort and selection and many, many, many millions of dollars to cultivate this line. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's quite simply the only independent and best-tasting chicken out there. Increasingly, consumers are associating meat production attributes to their own health, according to the 2019 Power of Meat study conducted by San Antonio-based 210 Analytics and commissioned jointly by the North American Meat Institute and FMI, the Food Industry Association. Grass-fed production claims, for example, were of interest to a majority of consumers, about 54%, followed by all-natural, antibiotic-free, hormone-free, or no added hormones. The, the folks who are getting paid a lot more than I am are all sort of pointing towards the fact that commercial commodity chicken is growing or commodity meats are growing, but only by like, you know, single digits, low single digits. Uh, the natural space is growing by low double digits, seven, you know, call it 17 to 20%. And that pasture raise and higher attribute products, you know, with more transparency are growing. Obviously, that's the smallest part of the sector, but they're growing by 60 to 70%. So, you know, We've seen that with Hanson Brook. We've seen that with Vital Farms. We've seen that when you go to the grocery store, you go to Trader Joe's or Wegmans or Whole Foods, you know, pasture raised in big letters is really um, what you're starting to see out there on the shelf. And I think, uh, you know, with uh, a consumer that's increasingly um, invested in health, um, I think a lot of folks have seen or the, the term USC organic kind of jumps a shark a little bit because of some of the lax requirements for organic. And it's not a secret anymore that it doesn't mean as much as it did when the movement started. So people are looking for more additionally. Um, and, and I think consumers think um, that pasture raised has a you know, higher level of, of transparency and is, is more acceptable. People are also looking for known sourcing you know, in their foods. Um, if you can identify you know, where your food is coming from, that's something folks are looking for. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, we're just we're increasingly a larger and larger food community, but people want to get closer and closer to their food. But I think I think there is an aggr- a growing aggregation of farmers that are trying to do better with the food they're serving and serve the audience um, and the customers better uh, quality food at a better price. Meat facsimiles such as Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger also have attracted consumers. Matt isn't a fan, and I think I mentioned in part one of this program that he doesn't pull any punches in his critique of the food system. I, I am very, very much against, like, if you want to eat a cheeseburger, I'm sorry, you eat a cheeseburger, why do you have to eat a fake cheeseburger to make yourself feel like you're saving the planet? It's not, it's, they're, they're not healthier than meat. Uh, they're calorically less dense. They are, uh, for the most part, highly processed foods. Um, and the claims that they make about being environmentally more friendly than beef are simply not true. Like, if you compare it to conventional beef, where you're feeding cattle, you know, corn and soy, Sure, you're using less corn and soy, but you're still using conventional ingredients to make, you know, those fake meat burgers. Um, you're, still, you're still creating an environmental output, you know, in the form of greenhouse gases versus cattle well-managed well on grassland have been proven to sequester greenhouse gases. So I, I'm very much of the advocacy of, like, pro-beef, but I'm grown in the right systems. Just using, like, horribly grown, highly processed grains to, to, to make, you know, fake meat, like, what's the, what's the value there? You know, it's not healthier for you, and it's still bad for the environment. So I, I, I'm, I'm against it. And also, like, you know, the FDA has raised some pretty good questions about um, some of the co- components that comprise those uh, beef, beef patties that, um, you know, they haven't necessarily gotten the, the, a full thumbs up yet and haven't been really studied and evaluated. So, uh, um, you know, my, my theory is, is, like, you know, like a lot of people have said this for me, but if you can't pronounce it on the label, it's probably not good for you. And cell-cultured meats aren't any better. Go eat, go, like, eat, eat, like, some quinoa, you know? Like, there's, like, other alternatives if you really are desperate for protein. You know, eat, like, people have been eating, like, lentils and vegetables for thousands of years, getting incredible amounts of, of nutrition, and as a chef, I'm just offended by lab-grown meat. Like, when there's, like, great vegetarian res- uh, recipes that you can cook that have been grown through civilizations for thousands and thousands of years and they're really delicious so what's next for cook's venture we're going to keep doing what we're doing you know one of the things one of the reasons why i left blue apron and one of my biggest focuses is because i'm such an advocate for the food system and supply chain and improving it and you know it was so hard to um not have uh, that as my full-time focus in my life and this is this is really you know what i do this is my livelihood and um, i'm really proud of the work that we're doing and the team that we've built and I want to increasingly, you know, give customers what I think some of them think they're already getting and, um, and continue to improve and create more education around, around this type of business. There's certainly no shortage of opportunity. That's the program for this week. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment as it helps support the program. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. For more news from the meat and poultry industry, head over to www.meatpoultry.com. And stay social with us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram by searching at Meat Poultry. I'm Erica Schaefer, and thanks for listening.